Chapter Eight, Part One of How I Found Livingstone. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. How I Found Livingstone by Sir Henry M. Stanley. Chapter Eight, Part One. My life and troubles during my residence in Unyas Niembe. I become engaged in a war. I received a noiseless ovation as I walked side by side with the governor, Said bin Salim, towards his tembe in Kwikuru, or the capital. The Wanyamwezi pagazis were out by the hundreds. The warriors of Mkasiwa, the sultan, hovered around their chief. The children were seen between the legs of their parents, even infants a few months old slung over their mothers' backs, all paid the tribute due to my colour, with one grand concentrated stare. The only persons who talked with me were the Arabs, and aged Mkasiwa, ruler of Unyanyembe. Said bin Salim's house was at the northwestern corner of the enclosure, a stockaded boma of Kwikuru. We had tea made in a silver teapot, and a bountiful supply of dampers were smoking under a silver cover, and to this repast I was invited. When a man has walked eight miles or so without any breakfast, and a hot tropical sun has been shining on him for three or four hours, he is apt to do justice to a meal, especially if his appetite is healthy. I think I astonished the governor by the dexterous way in which I managed to consume eleven cups of his aromatic concoction of an Assam herb, and the easy effortless style with which I demolished his high tower of slapjacks that but a minute or so smoked hotly under their silver cover. For the meal I thanked the sheikh, as only an earnest and sincerely hungry man now satisfied could thank him. Even if I had not spoken, my gratified looks had well informed him under what obligations I had been laid to him. Out came my pipe and tobacco pouch. My friendly sheikh, wilt thou smoke? No thanks, Arabs never smoke. Oh, if you don't, perhaps you would not object to me smoking in order to assist digestion? Gemar, good, go on, master. Then began the questions. The gossipy, curious, serious, light questions. How came the master? By the proper road. It is good. Was the Makata bad? Very bad. What news from Zanzibar? Good. Seer Torki has possession of Muscat, and Azim bin Gis was slain in the streets. Is this true, Ali? By God. It is true. <laughs> this is news stroking his beard. Have you heard, Master, of Suleiman bin Ali? Yes, the Bombay governor sent him to Zanzibar in a man of war, and Suleiman bin Ali now lies in the Goraiza. Fort. Heh, that is very good. Did you have to pay much tribute to the Wagogo? Eight times. Hamad Kimiani wished me to go by Kiwiya, but I declined when struck through the forest to Munieka. Hamad and Thani thought it better to follow me than to brave Kiwiya by themselves. Where is that Haji Abdullah, Captain Burton, that came here and speaky? Speak. Haji Abdullah? What Haji Abdullah? Ah, Sheikh Burton we call him. Oh, he is a great man now. A Balius, a consul. At Al-Sham, Damascus. <laughs> Balius? At Al-Sham? Is not that near Bethlehem Al-Quds? Jerusalem. Yes, about four days. Speaky is dead. He shot himself by accident. Ah, wella, by God, but this is bad news. Speaky dead? Mashallah. Oh, he was a good man, a good man. Dead? 
But where is his Kaza, Sheikh Said? Kaza? Kaza? I never heard the name before. But you were with Burton and speak at Kaza. You lived there several months when you were all stopping in Unyanyembe. It must be close here somewhere. Where did Haji Abdullah and Speaky live when they were in Unyanyembe? Was it not in Musa Mazuri's house? That was in Tabora. Well, then, where is Kaza? I have never seen the man yet who could tell me where that place is, and yet the three white men have that word down as the name of the place they lived at when you were with them. You must know where it is. Wallahi Bana, I never heard the name. But stop, Kaza in Kinlimwezi means kingdom. Perhaps they gave that name to the place they stopped at. But then I used to call the first house Snape in Amma's house, and Speak lived at Musa Mazuri's house, but both houses as well as all the rest are in Tabora. Thank you, Sheikh. I should like to go and look after my people. They must all be wanting food. I shall go with you to show you your house. The Tembi is in Kuihara, only an hour's walk from Tabora. On leaving Kuikuru we crossed a low ridge, and soon saw Kuihara lying between two low ranges of hills, the northernmost of which was terminated westward by the round, fortress-like hill of Simbili. There was a cold glare of intense sunshine over the valley, probably the effect of a universal bleakness or an autumnal ripeness of the grass, unrelieved by any depth of colour to vary the universal sameness. The hills were bleached, or seemed to be, under that dazzling sunshine and clearest atmosphere. The corn had long been cut, and there lay the stubble and fields, a browny-white expanse. The houses were of mud, and their flat roofs were of mud, and the mud was of a browny whiteness. The huts were thatched, and the stockades around them of barked timber, and these were of a browny whiteness. The cold, fierce, sickly wind from the mountains of Uzagara sent a deadly chill to our very marrows, yet the intense sunshiny glare never changed. A black cow or two or a tall tree here and there caught the eye for a moment, but they never made one forget that the first impression of Quihara was as of a picture without colour, or of food without taste, and if one looked up there was a sky of a pale blue, spotless and of an awful serenity. As they approached the tembe of Said bin Salim, Sheikh bin Nasib and other great Arabs joined us. Before the great door of the tembe the men had stacked the bales and piled the boxes, and were using their tongues at a furious rate, relating to the chiefs and soldiers of the first, second, and fourth caravans the many events which had befallen them, and which seemed to them the only things worth relating. Outside of their own limited circles they evidently cared for nothing. Then the several chiefs of the other caravans had in turn to relate their experiences of the road, and the noise of tongues was loud and furious. But as we approached all this loud-sounding gabble ceased, and my caravan chiefs and guides rushed to me to hail me as master, and to salute me as their friend. One fellow, faithful Baruti, threw himself at my feet. The others fired their guns and acted like madmen suddenly become frenzied, and a general cry of welcome was heard on all sides. "'Walk in, master, this is your house now. Here are your men's quarters, here you will receive the great Arabs. Here is the cook-house, here is the store-house, here is the prison for the refectory, here are your white men's apartments, and these are your own, see, here is the bedroom, here is the gun-room, bathroom, etc.' And so Sheikh Said talked as he showed me the several places. On my honour it was the most comfortable place, this in Central Africa. One could almost wax poetic, but we will keep such ambitious ideas for a future day. 
Just now, however, we must have the goods stored, and the little army of carriers paid off and disbanded. Bombay was ordered to unlock the strong storeroom, to pile the bales in regular tiers, the beads in rows one above another, and the wire in a separate place. The boats, canvas, etc. were to be placed high above the reach of white ants, and the boxes of ammunition and powder kegs were to be stored in the gun-room, out of reach of danger. Then a bale of cloth was opened, and each carrier was rewarded according to his merits, that each of them might proceed home to his friends and neighbours, and tell them how much better the white men behaved than the Arab. The reports of the leaders of the first, second, and fourth caravans were then received, their separate stores inspected, and the details and events of their marches heard. The first caravan had been engaged in a war in Kirurumo, and had come out of the fight successful, and had reached Unyanyembe without loss of anything. The second had shot a thief in the forest between Pemberapere and Kiridimo. The fourth had lost a bale in the jungle of Marenga Mkali, and the porter who had carried it had received a very sore head from a knob-stick wielded by one of the thieves, who prowl about the jungle near the frontier of Ugogo. I was delighted to find that their misfortunes were no more, and each leader was then and there rewarded with one handsome cloth, and five doti of Merikani. Just as I began to feel hungry again came several slaves in succession, bearing trays full of good things from the Arabs, first an enormous dish of rice with a bowl full of curried chicken, another with a dozen huge wheaten cakes, another with a plateful of smoking hot krillas, another with pawpaws, another with pomegranates and lemons. After these came men driving five fat humpbacked oxen, eight sheep and ten goats and another man with a dozen chickens and a dozen fresh eggs. This was real, practical, noble courtesy, munificent hospitality, which quite took my gratitude by storm. My people, now reduced to twenty-five, were as delighted at the prodigal plentitude visible on my tables and in my yard as I was myself, and as I saw their eyes light up at the unctuous anticipations presented to them by their riotous fancies, I ordered a bullock to be slaughtered and distributed. The second day of the arrival of the expedition in the country which I now looked upon as classic ground, since Captains Burton, Speke, and Grant years ago had visited it and described it, came the Arab magnates from Tabora to congratulate me. Tabora is the principal Arab settlement in Central Africa. It contains over a thousand huts and tembis, and one may safely estimate the population, Arabs, Wangwana, and natives, at five thousand people. Between Tabora and the next settlement, Quihara, rise two rugged hill-ridges, separated from each other by a low saddle, over the top of which Tabora is always visible from Quihara. There is no such recognized place as Kaza. They were a fine, handsome body of men, these Arabs. They mostly hailed from Oman. Others were Wazawahili, and each of my visitors had quite a retinue with him. At Tabora they live quite luxuriously. The plain on which the settlement is situated is exceedingly fertile. Though naked of trees, the rich pasturage it furnishes permits them to keep large herds of cattle and goats, from which they have an ample supply of milk, cream, butter, and ghee. Rice is grown everywhere. Sweet potatoes, yams, mohogo, mohoko sorghum, maize, or Indian corn, sesame, millet, field peas, or vetches called choroko, are cheap and always procurable. Around their tembes the Arabs cultivate a little wheat for their own purposes, and have planted orange, lemon, pawpaw, and mangoes, which thrive here fairly well. 
Onions and garlic, chilies, cucumbers, tomatoes, and brinjols may be procured by the white visitor from the more important Arabs, who are undoubted Epicureans in their way. Their slaves convey to them from the coast, once a year at least, their stores of tea, coffee, sugar, spices, jellies, curries, wine, brandy, biscuits, sardines, salmon, and such fine cloths and articles as they require for their own personal use. Almost every Arab of any eminence is able to show a wealth of Persian carpets, and most luxurious bedding, complete tea and coffee services, and magnificently carved dishes of tinned copper and brass lavers. Several of them sport gold watches and chains, mostly all a watch and chain of some kind, and as in Persia, Afghanistan, and Turkey, the harems form an essential feature of every Arab's household. The sensualism of the Mohammedans is as prominent here as in the Orient. The Arabs who now stood before the front door of my tembi were the donors of the good things received the day before. As in duty bound, of course, I greeted Sheikh Said first, then Sheikh bin Asib, His Highness of Zanzibar's consul at Caragua, then I greeted the noblest Trojan among the Arab population, noblest in bearing, noblest in courage and manly worth, Sheikh Kamis bin Abdullah, then young Amram bin Masood, who is now making war on the king of Urori and his fractious people, then handsome, courageous Sood, the son of Said bin Majid, then dandified Tani bin Abdullah, then Musud bin Abdullah and his cousin Abdullah bin Masood, who owned the houses where formerly lived Burton and Speak, then old Suleiman Dawa, Said bin Saif, and the old hetman of Tabora, Sheikh Sultan bin Ali. As the visit of these magnates, under whose loving protection white travellers must needs submit themselves, was only a formal one, such as Arab etiquette, ever of the stateliest and truest, impelled them to, it is unnecessary to relate the discourse on my health and their wealth, my thanks and their professions of loyalty and attachment to me. After having expended our mutual stock of congratulations and nonsense, they departed, having stated their wish that I should visit them at Tabora and partake of a feast which they were about to prepare for me. Three days afterwards I sallied out of my tembi, escorted by eighteen bravely dressed men of my escort, to pay Tabora a visit. On surmounting the saddle over which the road from the valley of Quihara leads to Tabora, the plain on which the Arab settlement is situated lay before us, one expanse of dun pasture-land, stretching from the base of the hill on our left as far as the banks of the northern Gomb, which a few miles beyond Tabora heave into purple-coloured hills and blue cones. Within three-quarters of an hour we were seated on the mud veranda of the tembe of Sultan bin Ali, who, because of his age, his wealth, and his position, being a colonel in Said Bukhash's unlovely army, is looked upon by his countrymen high and low as a referee and counsellor. His boma, or enclosure, contains quite a village of hive-shaped huts and square tembis. From here, after being presented with a cup of mocha coffee and some sherbet, we directed our steps towards Kamis bin Abdullah's house, who had in anticipation of my coming prepared a feast to which he had invited his friends and neighbours. The group of stately Arabs in their long white dresses and jaunty caps, also of a snowy white, who stood ready to welcome me to Dabora, produced quite an effect on my mind. I was in time for a council of war they were holding, and I was requested to attend. Kamis bin Abdullah, a bold and brave man, ever ready to stand up for the privileges of the Arabs and their rights to pass through any countries for legitimate trade, is the man who, in Speke's journal of the discovery of the source of the Nile, 
is reported to have shot Maula, an old chief who sided with Manuacera during the wars of 1860, and who subsequently, after chasing his relentless enemy for five years through Ogogo and Unyamwezi as far as Ukonongo, had the satisfaction of beheading him, was now urging the Arabs to assert their rights against a chief called Mirambo of Uyoe, in a crisis which was advancing. This Mirambo of Uyoe, it seems, had for the last few years been in a state of chronic discontent with the policies of the neighbouring chiefs. Formerly a pagazi for an Arab, he had now assumed regal power, with the usual knack of unconscionable rascals who care not by what means they step into power. When the chief of Uyoe died, Mirambo, who was head of a gang of robbers infesting the forests of Wiliankuru, suddenly entered Uyoe, and constituted himself Lord Paramount by force. Some feats of enterprise which he performed to the enrichment of all those who recognized his authority established him firmly in his position. This was but a beginning. He carried war through Ugara to Unkonongo, through Usagozi to the borders of Uvinza, and after destroying the populations over three degrees of latitude, he conceived a grievance against Mkasiwa and against the Arabs, because they would not sustain him in his ambitious projects against the ally and friend with whom they were living in peace. The first outrage which this audacious man committed against the Arabs was the halting of an Ujiji-bound caravan, and the demand for five kegs of gunpowder, five guns, and five bales of cloth. This extraordinary demand, after expending more than a day in fierce controversy, was paid, but the Arabs, if they were surprised at the exorbitant blackmail demanded of them, were more than ever surprised when they were told to return the way they came, and that no Arab caravan should pass through his country to Ujiji, except over his dead body. On the return of the unfortunate Arabs to Unyanyembe, they reported the facts to Sheikh Said bin Salim, the governor of the Arab colony. This old man, being averse to war, of course tried every means to induce Mirambo as of old to be satisfied with presents, but Mirambo this time was obdurate and sternly determined on war unless the Arabs aided him in the warfare he was about to wage against old Mkasiwa, sultan of the Waniamwezi of Unyanyembe. This is the status of affairs, said Kamis bin Abdullah. Mirambo says that for years he has been engaged in war against the neighboring Washensi, and has come out of it victorious. He says this is a great year with him, that he is going to fight the Arabs in the Waniamwezi of Unyanyembe, and that he shall not stop until every Arab is driven from Unyanyembe, and he rules over this country in place of Umkasiwa. Children of Oman, shall it be so? Speak, Salim, son of Saif, shall we go to meet this Mershensi, pagan, or shall we return to our island? A murmur of approbation followed the speech of Kamis bin Abdullah, the majority of those present being young men eager to punish the audacious Mirambo. Salim, the son of Saif, an old patriarch, slow of speech, tried to appease the passions of the young men, signs of the aristocracy of Muscat and Mutra, and Bedouins of the desert, but Kamisa's bold words had made too deep an impression on their minds. Saud, the handsome Arab whom I have noticed already as the son of Said, the son of Majid, spoke. My father used to tell me that he remembered the days when the Arabs could go through the country from Bagamoyo to Ujiji and from Kilwa to Lunda, and from Usenga to Uganda armed with canes. Those days are gone by. We have stood the insolence of the Wagogo long enough. Swaruru of Usoi just takes from us whatever he wants, 
and now here is Mirambo, who says after taking more than five bales of cloth as tribute from one man that no Arab caravan shall go to you, Gigi, but over his body. Are we prepared to give up the ivory of Ujiji, of Urundi, of Karagwa, of Uganda, because of this one man? I say war. War until we have got his beard under our feet. War until the whole of Uyoe and Wiliankuru is destroyed. War until we can again travel through any part of the country with only our walking canes in our hands. The universal assent that followed Sen's speech proved beyond a doubt that we were about to have a war. I thought of Livingstone. What if we were marching to Unyanyembe directly into the war country? Having found from the Arabs that they intended to finish the war quickly, at most within fifteen days, as Uyoe was only four marches distant, I volunteered to accompany them, take my loaded caravan with me as far as Mfuto, and there leave it in charge of a few guards, and with the rest march on with the Arab army. And my hope was that it might be possible after the defeat of Mirambo and his forest banditti, the Rugaruga, to take my expedition direct to Ujiji by the road now closed. The Arabs were sanguine of victory, and I partook of their enthusiasm. The council of war broke up. A great dishful of rice and curry, in which almonds, citron, raisins, and currants were plentifully mixed, was brought in, and it was wonderful how soon we forgot our warlike fervour after our attention had been drawn to this royal dish. I, of course, not being a Mohammedan, had a dish of my own, of a similar composition, strengthened by platters containing roast chicken and kebabs, crullers, cakes, sweetbread, fruit, glasses of sherbet and lemonade, dishes of gumdrops and muscat sweetmeats, dry raisins, prunes, and nuts. Certainly Kamis bin Abdullah proved to me that if he had a warlike soul in him, he could also attend to the cultivated tastes acquired under the shade of the mangoes on his father's estates in Zanzibar, the island. After gorging ourselves on these uncommon dainties, some of the chief Arabs escorted me to other tembes of Tabora. When we went to visit Musub bin Abdullah, he showed me the very ground where Burton and Speke's houses stood, now pulled down and replaced by his office. Sneep bin Amer's house was also torn down, and the fashionable tembe of Unyanyembe, now in vogue, built over it. Finely carved rafters, huge carved doors, brass knockers and lofty, airy rooms, a house built for defence and comfort. The finest house in Unyanyembe belongs to Amram bin Masud, who paid sixty frasila of ivory, over three thousand dollars for it. Very fair houses can be purchased for from twenty to thirty frasila of ivory. Amram's house is called the Two Seas, Baharin. It is one hundred feet in length and twenty feet high, with walls four feet thick, neatly plastered over with mud mortar. The great door is a marvel of carving work for Union Yembe artisans. Each rafter within is also carved with fine designs. Before the front of the house is a young plantation of pomegranate trees, which flourish here as if they were indigenous to the soil. A shadouf, such as may be seen on the Nile, serves to draw water to irrigate the gardens. End of chapter 8, part 1